James. Hey, Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How are you, mate? I'm good. Um, so, Cloudstrix is a podcast where James and I talk about a topic. And we think we're going to go through each of the chapters of Wait But Wise sort of most recent things, which is called The Story of Us. So, we're up to chapter two, which is called A Game of Giants. And mm. one of the things I'm sort of thinking about is, you know, in some respects, your relationships with other people are, are just time spent. So, your life is just time. And this last weekend was the first weekend in a while where there hadn't been a Wait But Why article from this series, which I hadn't read yet. And so it was like Sunday and I was like having withdrawal syndromes. I was like, oh, I've got nothing to read. And I was, it was really annoying. So I was like, but I'm in a relationship with Wait But Why. And I was thinking, you know, I don't know, you could have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. And I was like, I would much rather have a relationship with the Way But Why series. And so I, I was seriously having withdrawal syndromes on Sunday because I'm like, and, and I tried to fill it with some other stuff, but it was just wasn't the same. So basically, <laughs> I feel like I've been abandoned and I've been broken up with by the Way But Why series. Sounds like more of a, a codependent relationship, if you ask me. But uh, oh, no, I'm but... addicted. It's like yeah, it's like withdrawal syndromes. It's like no, nothing, nothing is as good as this. So yeah, yeah, uh, it, it it is quite um, like telling how much we look forward to new things coming out. Like I mean, anyone can talk about a TV series where you know, like Rick and Morty, like waiting waiting for that next TV series to come out. But like mm. when it's, it's something similar to this, where it's an incredibly engaging and captivating story that helps us understand more about who we are. And how mm. we think it's, it's kind of like i am aware that there is this next level of insight that i'm just going to be given to like it's just going to be given to me at some point in the future and i'm just like <laughs> holding out it's like you know like for each podcast there's like james before he reads it and james after it and i'm just like waiting to move on to the next <laughs> <laughs> it's like leveled up okay so, so part of this is also like how much would you pay for each of these like chapters. Now, some of them are better and worse than others. But I was seriously, I was like, on this Sunday most recently been, I was like, I would seriously drop at least a couple hundred dollars right now just to give me this friggin' chapter. Like, I was, I was trying to think, I was like, this is a, so annoying. Um, so if you, if you haven't read this, do yourself a favor. Hopefully us talking about it isn't so bad. But like, I'm pretty yeah. confident it's not going to be anywhere near as good as actually reading the underlying articles. <laughs> Well, like, I mean, we often, I don't know if it's a plug, but we often, well, we, we by definition, cite the material that we're, um, we're going through. But, like, this is another level entirely. Like, this is, um, Duncan and I would, um, uh, you know, would contemplate whether this is the single most impactful thing that we've ever read in our entire lives. So, not, yeah. um, you know, just dabbling in a little bit of um, uh, hyperbole. But... Uh, <laughs> oh, getting that one right, James. Nailed it. Um, but it, yeah, I think for um, you know for anyone that um, gets a chance to read this, it's just very, very. It's it's just an incredibly fascinating read. Whether you agree with it or not, or whether it resonates or not, it's just a very, very inc incredibly fascinating story. The story so of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, James said this like James before and James after having read some of this, and so. I don't know, we both, um, we watched Game of Thrones and we'd actually set up bets. Um, so at the start of a season, we'd have to bet on what we thought would happen by the end and then we'd see like how many of the things that we got right or wrong and then who, who sort of had the highest point tally. And so I think some of the people, you know, after the Red well Wedding, they'd be like, oh my God, want to scream and yell and tell people. I think that my response to this series has been more than that. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I need to like talk to somebody about this. <laughs> Don't judge it. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like... Seriously, like, because it's delicious and nutritious, like, you know, Game of Thrones is probably more just delicious. I'm not so sure that I learned so much from the Red Wedding. I'm not saying I learned nothing, but probably pretty close to nothing. <laughs> um, whereas this stuff, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, this is so cool. Um, and so this is part of, like, the, only the best things that I've read or contemplated kind of get to be talked about in the podcast. Mm. Um, and it's a beautiful way to share stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Shall we get stuck right into it then? Um, right. And so, I mean, I think it would be helpful if we first, like, just clarify, what did he mean by giant? Um, so, I think what he's saying is giants is when lots of humans can form together to form sort of like a, a big mound of humans, which is a giant, <laughs> so you can coordinate. <laughs> no, um, and 
Is that what do you reckon, James? Did I do that well? <laughs> I, 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 look, Duncan, I think you nailed it. Um, <laughs> beautifully said. Um, the, the I'm just um, contending with the visual imagery. I think people are putting in their heads of like these people just stacking on each other like a Spanish towel to make mm. a giant person. So, <laughs> um, adding to that is the the idea of emergence that mm. um, Tim Urban goes through in the very very beginning of this particular uh, episode. Uh, and emergence is something that, like, before reading the story of us, I had seen popping up, um, like, in other areas. And, like, um, you know, Duncan, you shared with me a video from either Kyrgyzstan or... Um, Kyrgyzstan, yeah. Kyrgyzstan. I watched it a couple of years ago, and that's yeah. when I was like, oh, this is cool. So that's when it, I, I sort of didn't really know about it till a couple of years ago. And yeah. it's game changer. Total yeah. game changer. Yeah. yeah. Kyrgyzstan or emergence? No, no, sorry, Kyrgyzstan, I saw Emergence, uh, sorry, on yeah. the Kyrgyzstan channel a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And that's like, it just shifts. So certain yeah. things like before and after, This I love you talking about like before and after, James. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, now you sort of look for Emergence everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. this is extremely beautiful. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of like, uh-oh, when you did not have this mental model, you kind of were like just doing life you know, without like, it's like walking around, except it's pitch yeah. black the whole time. Yeah. It's pretty, it's a lot diff- more difficult to try to navigate mm. when you cannot see. <laughs> There's equivalence. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It's like this kind of thing where you're navigating through life and there's this thing in the back of your mind that kind of like you're aware of, but you, you just have no words to put to it. You have no level of awareness to be able to make sense of it in different settings. Like, you know, when um, the example he gives, which is a, like an army of ants, when you watch how ants operate together, you kind of like, this is cool, like how they can cooperate very easily without things like mobile phones and internet and <laughs> pages yeah. or whatever. But I've just quickly said, emergence as a concept, um, so my understanding anyway, is basically, uh, at its at simplest level, is how is it that a collection of seemingly inanimate things um, in this case, let's go with just atoms, are able to band together and then suddenly at some point you have achieved consciousness, which is in this case a human brain. So it's like this, this idea that when you have enough or when you have enough in a certain construct, um, in a single grouping and, stru- and constructed in a certain way, it creates a lev- an identity at a new level, at that collective level. So when um, Tim Urban says, like, you start off with an atom, but you band them together, you get a molecule. You band those together until you get, like, a human cell. You get enough human cells together, you get a human. And so it's like this leveling up of all of these different collective levels of awareness. And so the human giant is, well, what happens when we put enough humans together? Is there, a, is there this consciousness that emerges from us simply by way of us being able to cooperate or communicate yeah so i think the one part from from that i sort of really like is like you know a rock doesn't have a consciousness right (laughs) Um, it's a a collection of atoms but suddenly you go from okay it doesn't have any consciousness to it can think and it can write and it can talk how does that happen Mm. um and so i think a sort of similar example is Today, we stand on, you know, so much layers of other things and therefore can create new emergent properties. Hmm. So, James and I are talking to each other through a phone, you know, which is going through the internet. And we read an article which was written by somebody in America, you know, with words. Um, and so, words, you know, are it's another emergent layer. How do you communicate things rather than just, I don't know, interpretive dance or something? Hmm. And so, what I don't think I realized really was just, whoa, a colossus. So the biggest one, like all of humanity, like the internet is, you know, human knowledge. And so if you think about, I don't know, maths, that's something which is sort of stored emergent layers. And then with the math, you can solve problems you didn't have before. Mm. Or words are solutions to problems. So the more words you have, the more solutions you have. And so a giant is basically humans collecting together to be able to do something that no human individually would be able to do. Yes. So I think this is obvious when you think about it. But before having thought about it, I didn't get it. Yeah, so I think um, another really interesting way of looking at this in terms of how, you know, the way we communicate and the way that we share knowledge has actually significantly impacted, like, us as individuals and the human race. If, if you look at, 
you know, over the course of human history, and let's just go back, to, you know, to the start of when the written word was invented, uh, things moved very slowly in, in, you know, in terms of human progress. And it wasn't, and, and as soon as written language was invented, suddenly that knowledge was able to be shared much more prolifically. And the progression of human as a society through the Paleolithic area, through the, the, the farming period, to the Bronze Age, to today where we have a lot more information, um, was an exponential growth. But the, that whole time, we as an individual species uh, haven't gotten smarter. It's just our ability to access this collective intelligence through the tools that we use. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, I think one way of thinking about this in a really concrete fashion is that emergency is where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, so, for instance, a good company, I think, can do more than if it was just that individual times, so let's say, 10 people in that company, and it was more than just you know, that person times 10, you actually get something that's more than they would otherwise be able to do. And so you can have the different skill sets mixed together in a way which creates a solution set that's not possible unless you have those mixing together. Um, so, a, you know, a good country, again, is sort of similar. You know, you get to have the internet, you get to have computers, you get to have food, you get to have all these things, you know, universities, new IP, media. And so you contribute something, but you're getting wild amounts more because everyone's working together than if everyone just worked independently mm. there, as you would. Yeah. So you take this kind of like, this, this would you call it a theory? I guess it's a theory because emergence itself is just an idea. <laughs> well, it's sort of an idea, so yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you start to see it everywhere. As you were saying before, Duncan, like the before and after, and like once you can see it, you can see it, how it plays out in, in your life, in nature, etc. And so... This is really helpful in understanding, uh, I guess, motivation behind the way we behave, whether we're an individual and or whether we are thinking as an individual, sorry, or whether we're thinking as a group. So this is where, I guess, Tim Urban's point is that you've got animals like ants who operate primarily at the emergent layer of the group or the colony, and you've got animals like spiders who operate at the individual emergent level so by themselves. But we as humans are much more complicated because we operate across multiple levels simultaneously. Yes, yeah, so I think in the initial part, he was talking about how there's your primeval brain, which is kind of like you're wired to like hungry, you know, your body feels like go eat, walk near a cliff, get vertigo, don't walk off, you know, see something you want to procreate with, want to procreate. But then there is your sort of higher mind, which you can sort of hopefully do some thinking. You're not just driven by your primeval sort of forces. Humans, um, you know, one of the reasons that they ended up being the dominant species on Earth, where we every other species kind of lives at our behest, was because we could coordinate together as a tribe. Mm. And so this emergent layer of, say, about 150 humans uh, working together were able to beat any other species. So there were other types of sapiens. There, there was you know, Neanderthals. And they don't exist because <laughs> we killed them off. Um, and we killed them off mainly because we were able to coordinate better. So if you have one 50th percentile male and it finds one 10th percentile male, top 10, the 10th percentile one will win most of the time, right? Mm. But if you've got three 50th percentile males versus one 10th percentile male, normally that one 10th percentile male is going down because the three of them together coordinating are going to totally obliterate it. I'm doing the math in my of... head as you go, Duncan, but I think I get it. <laughs> But so basically, three average males are going to take down one really strong male, you know, yeah. versus... So that's Not kind good. of what happened with humanity. So we weren't necessarily the strongest of all the animals. No. But we could coordinate together in much bigger numbers so right. that, therefore, we, t you know, were able to be dominant versus anybody else. Mm. So humanity emerged as the dominant player because we were able to coordinate better. And our yep. coordination together, an emergent layer, meant that... One versus one, we weren't always the best, but one versus many, you were stuffed. And then this is where the sort of natural tribalness occurred. So yeah. tribalness is an emergent layer working well together. Yeah. So like tribalness is um, a, a fantastic, I guess, way of trying to really understand two things. And so it's this idea of, well, you as an individual, like, so let's say, for example, Duncan and I might see each other 
uh, as competitors, or we might have, um, I guess, this zero-sum idea where between the two of us, if we don't, um, you know, out-compete or kill the other person, then we're not going to have enough food for ourselves. And this can play out in, you know, in other settings. But then suddenly, when it becomes apparent that Duncan and I have a common enemy, so let's say, um, you know, a tribe of Neanderthals, then Duncan and I will see it in our best interest, or we will figure out it's in our best interest to band together to overcome our opponents or our enemies. And so this is the idea of a me versus you on the individual level versus an us versus them sort of tribalism. So if, if, if I understand it correctly, like tribalism creates this identity of it's no longer you and me or you versus me, Duncan. It's you and me together versus our common enemy. Yeah, so I think um, you know, one emergent layer, one human by itself was way less good than 150 humans together. So there's an emergent layer of, okay, well, some can farm, some can, you know, look after the children, some can defend the tribe, et cetera, et cetera, that is better than one human having to do all of those jobs sort of by themselves. Yeah. And so the emergent layer was the tribe. Um, and I think this is really important to understand that for most of, you know, humanity, so humanity has optimized from a biological perspective and from a stories, i.e. socio-cultural perspective to look after the most number of humans. Yeah. So whichever biological traits and whichever stories made the most number of humans one, people that didn't have that, they're no longer around. And so in a zero-sum world, i.e. if you're a tribe, you're hunter gathering, if there's another tribe and you get rid of them, then there's more animals roaming around for you or there's more berries on the tree. And so the story that one was that you have to be strong with your tribe. If you weren't strong with the tribe, then you were going to get wiped out by yourself. Mm. And this meant tribalness, you know, which is effectively loyalty, didn't matter what, you were 100% loyal to that tribe. And if you weren't immediately loyal, and you were going to actually stand up and defend the tribe, i.e. kill others, then you were killed. And so this is a really, really important thing. The optimal story for survival in a zero-sum world is blind loyalty. Mm. You will do whatever the tribe does, no matter what. And the worst thing you can be is a traitor, which is the opposite of loyalty. And so the emergent layer that won for humans was collaborating together in groups of 150. And the property behind that, the story, was blind loyalty, which you never, ever, under any circumstances, went against the tribe. And you always did what they said. Yeah. And I think that story still exists today, but it's not really necessarily so productive because we're not in a zero-sum world anymore. We're in a positive-sum world. Yeah. So, um, I mean, a lot to cover in that. But like going back to the original premise in terms of like in the, in the beginning... There were. There was light. There'd there, there, there be light. Um, there were. I can't remember what the number was, but uh, like Duncan, you might uh, remember. But there were actually quite a few number of species that you could like, that were like within the band of like humans. Like Neanderthals were one, Homo sapiens were another. But there are actually a few other ones. Homo erectus is a. There's, there's a few. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like um, you know, it's easy to forget that fact, and. So what kind of like happened is it was it wasn't that the Homo sapiens figured out consciously, hey, if we band together, we'll beat these people. It was, um, if I remember correctly, actually the the biological mutation that made them more predisposed to cooperation. So it was kind of like a fluke, and that fluke became a self perpetuating cycle of success because by doing that, they were able to completely overrun the other human species and that's why there is only one human species today because we basically run the all of the other ones into extinction um but it's what Duncan was saying earlier it's really interesting that even though it started off as a programmatic um you know glitch it then became self-reinforcing into the stories we tell ourselves or each other in that this idea of you are loyal to your tribe is central to your identity because underneath it's actually central to your survival. Yeah, so I think that you've got to recognize that the world has shifted. So before the sort of industrial revolution, it was zero sum. And mm. I think afterwards, it's mainly positive sum. Now, there are negative sum games or zero sum games still, but on average, the world is positive sum now. But I don't think people have really understood this. So our biological wiring said you are 99% more likely to die from starvation than overeating. So it's like eat as much as possible and the foods that taste the best are the ones with the highest calorie. 
Yeah. Now that that worked when we didn't have farming and you know supermarkets. Yeah. But now it's a bigger problem because now we have excess food. More people die from too much food, not enough food. You've got diabetes and heart attacks and all that other problem. Okay. So so what was the optimal solution in one space? If the circumstances, the environment change, no longer is necessarily the optimal solution. So the optimal solution in a zero-sum world was that you cooperate together in a tribe and that you have blind loyalty and there's always an enemy and you want to kill that enemy, right? <laughs> um, now, in a positive-sum world, that story doesn't work anymore. Mm. And so this is where tribalism, I think, is now not useful. <laughs> um, so it's easier to divide than it is to unite. The story that is sort of passed down, so it's like every part of the world, what, is, what do you need to do? Have children. What do you need to do? Give them a better life than what they had, you had. If you don't have that story, you, you're dead. You, those people didn't believe that are no longer around. doesn't matter if you go to the Middle East or to, you know, an African tribe that's never, you know, seen anybody else. Same story, right? Okay, well, we need to think about the world's changed. And so instead of you, well, it's, you know, I, I can take from you. It's like, well, I can work with you. And we have an emergent layer where instead of it being 150, it's global. Mm. where we don't really have to worry about there not being enough food. The thing we have to worry most about is us killing each other or us being selfish, whereas in the past, we had to worry about not killing each other. <laughs> so it's, it's totally changed. Yeah. And this is really hard because the story is so deeply embedded in all of the literature and everything. Yeah, so I think that's a really um, important distinction that I, that I really enjoy kind of like digging further into is this idea that, you know, as incredibly well designed our minds are or brains i should say um the, the, the physiological aspect um someone was like so uh, i mean tim, tim urban has described it beautifully in one of his other blogs it's like there's three layers to your brain there's the neocortex the, the front of your brain there's the mammalian or the limbic system in the middle and then there's the reptilian brain and that reptilian brain um, is arguably millions of years old the limbic system maybe hundreds of thousands in the neo context, much more recent. Um, and so the idea about these programs that we run on, like the, the fire versus light, as he pulled out, he pointed out, are these limbic systems and mammalian, uh, reptilian brains that are still programmed to operate the same way that they did all those thousands of years ago. And so what you pointed out, Duncan, is back then when we were slaves to nature, where we were in a world where it was not only zero sum, but it was like we were operating predominantly on the survival layer of the hierarchy of need. Oh, I mentioned it. Um, mm -hmm. That was a good program. And it ran on that program because we spent so long at that level of existence. Um, however, because we, since let's say the written era, managed to exponentially move ourselves as a species out of the hunger games or <laughs> um, you know survival mode into this abundance uh, this world of abundance our brains have had nowhere near enough time to catch up and rewire itself so we're still running on this program it's only the mm. neocortex this awareness this consciousness that we have or what Tim Irvin calls the light that if we can utilize properly can call awareness to that fact and then change it so I think pre-industrial revolution, again, the world was sort of zero sum. So this means that the output, like you need food to, to not, you know, starve, yeah. was not dependent on people working for it. It was dependent on you sort of catching it, right? So the number of animals grazing around or the number of berries growing on a tree was not because humans cultivated them. They weren't farming animals or farming, mm. you know, fruit. So therefore, the optimal outcome here was getting rid of other humans that were stealing yours, right? <laughs> so it was actually like, the more you kill off of those people, the more there is for me, which is kind of like, well, what do we want to do? Kill as many of these other people stealing the, you know, actual fixed amount of output. <laughs> now, after the Industrial Revolution, it used to be that 90% of humans, even in the sort of farming age, were farmers, subsistence farmers. Now it's 1.3% in Australia, and they we export more food than we actually grow. So now... Output is dependent upon humans working. Whereas before, output wasn't dependent upon humans working. Food. Output was dependent on how much you could catch. And how much you could catch was dependent on how much competition there was. Yeah. So if humans aren't working for output now, e.g. they're in a war and they're fighting each other, killing each other, output goes down, right? 
Therefore, you actually have less. So the ability for surplus, the emotion layer goes down. So before the optimal outcome, there was fixed output, was to make sure you got as much of it as possible. Now the optimal outcome is to make sure output grows. Mm. And so mm. getting as much of it before was getting rid of others. Now getting as much of it now is making as much as possible. It's collaborating with others. Right, right. So no. the story, tribalism, just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. It's not screw the other people. It's make sure we work well with them because if we don't, we all lose. And mm. that's just not in the lexicon. Yeah. And so... As we, talked, Sorry. <laughs> as we talked about last week, um, the way Tim, or- Tim Urban puts it forward is that at the end of the day, the, our genes are just looking for a way to survive. That's, uh, our genes do not care if we struggle. They just care if we're able to pass them on to the next um, lineage in order to ensure their own survival. So that's what, um, at the genetic level, the program we're running on, which is kind of like what you were talking there, Duncan, like this idea of, well, we must be able to, um, you know, remove competition, remove threats on one side, and then we must be able to procreate and reproduce and re-ensure that the um, the lineage will continue. So there are two very hard programs running in our, um, in our bodies pretty much at all times. Um, and then it's this idea, well, now we're in a world where that's completely flipped on its head. We can at least show that we've completely removed the need for us to have com- competition over resources because we live in an abundant world where food is plentiful. Um, haven't exactly proven that you no longer need to procreate, um, albeit I can fairly convinced that we're already on that path. Um, but it's about this idea that with the neocortex or with the light mind, we can call to awareness that we don't need to operate in this tribalistic mentality anymore. There's a new way to operate. And that new way I think you were kind of pointing at is no longer zero sum, it's kind of like um, uh, 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 synthesis. It's like where you come together and you can create more outputs than than the inputs required. That make sense? I think so. So I think in the past, again, like this is the sort of thing, like how do I stop someone from screwing me? And this mm. is sort of the rules. I was like, if they can, they will. <laughs> um, and this was, again, the optimal outcome when there was a fixed amount of output. It's, well, it heads I win, tails, you know, so if, I, what, if what I take, you know, you, oh, sorry, if you take, I don't get. Whereas, whereas now, I think the story should be, well, people are out there to screw me. And they are because if they don't, then there's not enough, right? Is how do I be the best partner possible? the best partner possible creates the most output and has the most partnerships brought to them. So in a zero-sum world, the optimal story is totally different than Mm. a positive-sum world. In a zero-sum world, Mm. everyone's trying to screw me. How do I stop them from screwing me? In a positive-sum world, Mm. how do I be the best partner possible? Right. And so tribalism, you know, as Tim Evans said, is what selfishness looks like one layer up from the individual. It's how does the tribe be as selfish as possible? Yeah. And yeah. blind loyalty is doesn't matter whatever we look after the tribe, I win. You know, if your tribe's strong, they beat the other tribe. It's not about beating tribes anymore. It's about helping making each other mutually better. And this story is so deeply embedded in all parts of the world because that's what won, that we're fighting against it. The easiest way to unite people is through a common enemy, not to believe that the best way is to be good to thy neighbor. Yeah. So, like, and um, some people would observe that because it's so deeply embedded in us today and that we don't get it because we're not in these constantly warring factions, um, we have to manufacture it artificially through things like sports, through things like politics, um, so that we can actually satiate that, um, that part of our, um, I guess, uh, you know, tribalistic urges. Um, but that was the other thing you kind of mentioned is that so this idea of loyalty or blind loyalty um, which is simply tribalism um, or selfishness at a different level. Um, in my mind, in order for that to actually op- like exist, you have to also have this semblance of lionizing or otherizing the others. Like you need to have, in order for there to be us versus them, there needs to be a them. And so, when we still see these kind of tribalistic urges come into you know the modern world, and it's very much pervasive, I would um, I would argue, by way of people not being aware of how they're being driven. Um, well, as long as we have these tribalistic urges, we're always going to have an us versus them. 
And so we're always going to have this kind of this mentality of zero sum, this mentality of how do I make like, not just how do I make sure these people don't screw me, but how do I screw them? Because that's kind of what you need to believe in order to survive if you think tribalism is the way forward. Yeah, so I think again, like your biology was optimized towards staying alive. If you didn't get hungry when you were hungry, you died from starvation. If you didn't get horny when you saw a potential mate, you didn't procreate a lot. If you didn't get scared when you walked near a cliff, you walked off the cliff. So basically the horniest people won, right? Um, <laughs> and seriously, you know, and the people that were the hungriest, i.e. now can't stop eating, they won. <laughs> and so then if you think about, okay, well, one layer up, the people, the tribes that had the strongest loyalty won. It's like you can put aside your differences, doesn't matter what, like me and James were in the same tribe and we were fighting over something. But as soon as the other tribe rocked along, that stuff's done. I don't care what it is. Immediately, we're going to go and mess them up. And this is not a little bit, like they die, right? <laughs> and so the tribes that had the strongest loyalty, i.e. we will put aside any differences and I will do whatever the hell is needed to, to make sure that, you know, we're around, blind loyalty, they won. And traitor is the opposite of that story. So... Therefore, this is the socio-cultural indoctrination. It's mm. super, super, super deep. And you can see it like, I don't know, in religion, whether it's the Crusades or whether it's that they have to have a caliphate and a jihad, a holy war. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, what do we think about them? We're going to go and wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> not, not, not a little bit nice. And this is, for better or worse, in, in sort of all places. And so I mm. think that what caused certain, uh, in a certain operating environment, a zero-sum world, to win, people who could bandy together and who would, no matter what, go and back each other, mm. is now the most counterproductive story. Yeah. So the easiest story to get to resonate, it's easier to divide Trump, F these people, than it is to say, no, be nice to those people. Hey, you did well, give them some money. And hey, poor people, they gave you some money, don't hate them. You know, yeah. whereas it, it's the opposite story which got us to where we are. So we have to unwind the story, change it, and put a new story in. But that's very much more difficult than, well, this is what for millennia worked. Yeah. So I think, like, um, to simplify that down to um, a model that was in the article, there's three kinds of tribes. There's tribe A who all hate each other. Like, so there's one thing like, you're very annoying. The other one said, eat shit. And so they all can kill each other. <laughs> Not a good outcome for tribe A. No. But then yeah. tribe B and C are all nice to each other. But the difference between tribe B and C is that when tribes meet, tribe B is nice to tribe C, or tribe C decides they're going to wipe out tribe B. And mm. so this is the prevailing notion today, is that in order for you to survive, not only do you need to have this identity at the individual level, you need to have this identity at the tribalistic or group level that is uh, aggressive and um, aggrievous to other tribes. And that's how it kind of, come, like, like you said, like that model worked. That model is the model that survived to today. And so mm. that's why it can very easily rear itself through modern machinations like politics. Um, mm. and, and, and that's why it's not as simple as us just being able to say like, hey guys, like we kind of, you know, conquered this nature thing. Can we all just like get along? Like, well, most people are like, no, I'm still running on this very ancient program. And it's, it's driving a lot of the, um, you know, the desires and subconscious um, needs that I have to this day. Yeah, so I think you've got to understand what biological programming done to you and what socio-cultural programming done to you. Mm. And if you don't, then you're unaware of the effects that it has. And as such, you might think this is the right thing. So basically, the more aware I become of my biology and that it's, again, like if you didn't want to procreate, those people aren't around anymore. So when my body says procreate, it's not like, oh, I have to procreate. It's just doing what it's biologically programmed to do. And so when you start to see, oh, God, okay, I get part of this tribalism and I get why it resonates and, you know, sport might be a more positive some version of this, but then you can go to some places where they're like, you're doing, I don't know, soccer in, the, in Europe and they'll go and beat each other up after. <laughs> um, whereas other ones here, they might have a more sort of positive some outcome. So mm. to me, okay, I now understand where tribalism 
loyalties that have came from, I now understand why it's much easier to divide because all the stories in, in religion and in books and in everything say that this is what you should do. And so now it's like, ah, okay. Well, it made sense there, but I don't think it makes sense anymore. So we need to create new stories and we need to say, okay, well, look, it did work here. It doesn't necessarily work here. We should have a new one, which is how do we cooperate best together? And how do you cooperate? If you cooperate like every human on earth, not just the 150 in your tribe, that's the best way because it's positive sum to make the most output. Mm. But people can be like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm American. I'm European. I'm, I'm Chinese or whatever or, or, or something. It's like, mm. no, no. The people that can cooperate the best, that story, now win. Getting that in and getting that to work and to realize that there are so many other places which are pushing the other old story is really hard. Mm. So, um, first of all, I, I, I think I agree with you. <laughs> um, at my, I guess my, uh, I guess my question to that is: we're kind of already seeing this model of mutually beneficial cooperation playing itself out um, to success. Do you think then that the idea or the focus should be to just kind of um, like magnify and uh, I guess like extend on that, or do you think that? we should actually try to work to remove the more tribalistic thinking. Because I guess my question is that there's quite a lot of areas in the world that will be very much fixed in its approach. They're very much convinced that this is the right way to operate because of X, Y, Z, and there's not really going to be much to change their mind. So what do we think would be a way for us to be able to move the human colossus to this new way of thinking? There's... I don't know if there's one answer to this, but I just, just look at it from a political leadership lens. So I think you've had times where you've had people like FDR who did want to unite, mm. who did want to go and help. And then I think you've had times where you have people like Trump, who is definitely, I think, sort of more of a dividing character. You've got Putin. I don't think he's trying to integrate with the rest of the world. I think he's trying to bring down democracies all over the world. I think you've got President Xi, like China strong, you know, blah, blah, blah. We have to end the 100 years of humiliation. And so I think that the, the political leaders do have moral leadership and that I think a lot of them are leading in what I believe is the counterproductive way. Now, I think that China was going around screwing the rest of the world and not getting a fair deal so that they should have, you know, they, they were doing what they win, everyone else loses because they weren't sharing IP, they were stealing, they weren't allowing you to like, you know, have companies in China that sell to the Chinese, but they could sell to you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the greatest um, transfer so, of wealth in history, they would say. Yeah, so to me, um, I think that political leaders have a massive part to play in this, but I think it's from them down to everyone, yeah. um, you know, in your family even, you know, uh, you know, et cetera. So this, I think, you know, you see where it goes really back the other way and that's kind of where world wars and other things kick off. Mm. And so it goes up and down um, and I hope that we are turning a corner because I think we've gone very much towards tribalism in the last 10 years and I, and I think, you know, we're about to have a recession, I believe, and that's going to make everyone unhappy and then tribalism is a lot easier answer at that point again. Right, so I, th- I think it's very, very... Um... You know, I guess this could be, you know, the challenge of our generation. So um, and we're seeing this come through in a lot of different ways. Like, I, I, like just from observation, the way children growing up in a digital age think and interact, is, I find very different to the way that you and I grew up and the way we would think and interact. And then you extrapolate that out to, you know, the, the baby boomers and all the rest of the people who had a much more analogous uh, upbringing. And no, so... No. And so I think it would be, uh, you know, something that would over generations kind of like perpetuate itself by way of this new uh, like model of success, where if we see this idea of mutually beneficial cooperation bearing itself out, and like this is where it's tricky, like what's the difference between mutually beneficial cooperation at the tribal level? Which is what that is versus at the the, the species level or the, like the entire world level. Like to like, how do we remove this sense of tribalism? Because are we not just removing up a level in the emergence layer because of this tribalism is now considered selfish? We might just simply be pushing it up the level to the human level, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if aliens come along, we're like, ah, oh, we must kill them because of. The- <laughs> 
Well, it depends if it's an existential threat. Um, I think we're going to get a lot into why tribalism might be going out in the later chapters or might mm. be increasing. Yep. I think a lot of that has to do with the changing media landscape, um, even not in you know authoritarian regimes where they are warping it, even in like the West as an example. But I think one thing which was interesting to talk about, which we haven't, is again, biology and stories all optimized for the most number of humans in a zero-sum world. And that 500 years ago... You know, it was basically what humans are doing for the vast majority of them, hunter-gatherers. You know, now almost nobody's a hunter-gatherer. So our biology and our stories can't change. Our biology has changed zero, and the stories have sort of changed, but a lot of them are not that different than what they were even, you know, so, you know, not very long time ago. Okay, so biological um, optimization, males versus females. Um, so I think that we're not 100% the same, but we're not 100% different. Mm. Um and so what made a successful male versus what made a successful female? Well, one of the key differences is that one can have children and can feed, you know, infants and one can't. So that meant that no surprise one... Well, which one that is. Yeah, so females can do something that males can't do, right? Um, yeah. What, one of the outcomes is that males and females are not 100% the same due to the biological optimizations to get the most number of humans. So females can have children, males can't. They can do, you know, feeding of children from, you know, breastfeeding younger and males can't. Um, okay, so, so what did that kind of mean? So males, by definition, therefore, needed to do far more of the protecting of the tribe and females needed to do far more of the child rearing of the tribe mm. because there was a biological, you know, one can't do the other. Okay, so if a tribe's being attacked, the women need to go and take the children to run away. And the men need to go and defend the tribe. So this means that males, all else equal, were far more willing to go and not worry about, you know, killing themselves. Um, and if you look at, like, younger boys, they'll do things which younger females are just like, what the hell are those people thinking? It doesn't make <laughs> any sense. And they harm themselves. Um, and you can sort of see this, like, men look after themselves less. One of the reasons that people say that men live for less years than females is not because biologically the you know system's worse. It's just that they look after themselves less. Mm. And that's an outcome of the fact that if they looked after themselves more, then they were less willing to go and step in front of a spear or go and try and take down that <coughs> dangerous animal. And so this is actually an outcome. So the, the, you know, the optimal females were the most nurturing, looking after and also less, you know, more fear. They, you know, when something bad happened, they weren't going to step into it. And optimal males, sort of the opposite. Mm. And so, this is a biological imperative. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum and some people sit in different places on that. But this is not because, I don't know, stories necessarily. It's because actually, biologically, this was the optimal outcome. And I think there's an outcome for this which goes into what kind of jobs today suit the most. And if you want, I can talk about that now, James, or you can have a comment about this. <laughs> um, well, I just had a really nice anecdote to kind of add to your um, example there, Doug. But like yesterday, my family and I were at the Reptile Zoo. And one of the, one of the shows that we were watching was How to Catch a Funnel Web. And, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's as interesting as it sounds, believe me. But um, so the zookeeper would actually have a real life funnel web, a female, which are um, six times less toxic than the male. So at least that uh, you know risk was mitigated. But uh, he would also talk through um, you know some of the statistics in Australia about people who were who would fall victim to funnel web bites. And so you can probably guess the two top cohorts of victims. Number one boys, age 6 to 16, and number two, men, age 17 to 34. <laughs> and so I don't know if they actually believe this to be true or if they just um, read this as a result of the, the analysis, but he then said, so it then needs to be the mother's job to catch the spider when they spot one. And at that point, I just kind of like turned my head around to my partner who was standing there at the time with me. And she said, oh, hell no, you men are the hunters. That shit is your problem. <laughs> <laughs> so like I could very well be another statistic in, in due time. So we'll have to wait and see. But um, it's definitely, you know, this idea of, you know, gender roles 
And I don't think we've got enough time to go into how it's evolved in today's landscape with your with the neoliberalism and all of this kind of idea <laughs> that gender is a construct. But um, I don't think it's it's hard to argue that because of the different genetic makeup of the genders, there has also evolved a different, I guess, temperament and number of attributes. So as you were kind of pointing out, with women, because they're more nurturing, because they have a child to raise, they have more empathy. They have a greater ability. On the average, there are just there are men who can empathize just as well as women, and you know it's really when you go to the extreme, is it primarily women um, that you can see a difference? Um, whereas with men, they're far more uh, objective driven. They're far more task orientated. They're far more mission driven. I should say. So they're these kind of identifications of what really distinguishes us between the different genders. Mm. So I think that there are biological differences between males and females. Now, we're not 100% different. We're not 100% the same. And there are also socio-cultural indoctrination differences. Mm. So some people would say it's 100% socio-cultural. I don't think that's true. I think there are biological differences. And you can just look at males and females um, to sort of see some of this. So, so what were the jobs that males had in the past? This is a massive oversimplification. They had to do more of the hunting and they had to do more of the defending of the tribe. What were the jobs that the females had? Well, they had to do more of the child rearing and they had to do more of the making sure the tribe survived and running away. You know, the productive capacity of a tribe or reproductive, I should say, was the number of females, not the number of males. Okay, so those were the jobs that, that they needed to do for, through necessity and that there would be a partial biological optimization to the people that were doing better at those would have biological differences. There are also socio-cultural differences, but there are biological too. Mm. What jobs today look like those jobs from the past? So if you're looking after people, nurturing, maybe you're a nurse. Maybe you're a teacher. So are those heavily female-dominated industries? Yes. Okay. If you're not looking after people and you're, you're like big into risk, that might be doing things like being finance. You have to manage risk. Being an entrepreneur. So you don't, less, less people, more risk. So there's a sort of descendants of the old jobs that you had to do when it was a hunter-gatherer tribe. Mm. Are those ones far more male-dominated? Yes. Now, this is not saying it's right or wrong, but is biology partially in line with this? And you can see it. Like, all else equal, I think, you know, teenage boys do some really dumb stuff. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> think anyone's going to sort of disagree with that. You know, are teenage boys more likely to be caught speeding in a car than a teenage female? Yeah. You know, are they more likely to hurt themselves? Like, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm. Um, okay. So, so this is not necessarily because of some totally, I don't know, evil white male patriarchy that is causing these things. I think that the reason that people are partially annoyed is that inequality has gone up, in my opinion, in an unfair fashion. And there's been two rebargainings. The last was the you know New Deal with FDR. And I think that we'll have another one now. And so people are unhappy because the pie that's growing isn't being split in a fair and equitable fashion. And then one of the things they're annoyed about is inequality because that's what you know, things are up. And then they say, okay, well, high earning jobs are bad and low earning jobs are good. Now, some jobs have scale. Some jobs don't. So for instance, if you're nursing... You can't just double the number of people that you're looking after. Whereas if you're in finance, you can double the amount of money that you're looking after and it doesn't change. Mm. If you're a teacher, you can't actually just double the number of students in a classroom. But if you're doing an entrepreneur, can you double the number of people that Google looks after? Yes. So the jobs, because of partial biological differences where more scale is, not because they're better or worse, is actually higher for some jobs. And so therefore, the amount that people can earn in those jobs is different. So this, I think these jobs have higher inequality or higher pay discrepancies, but partially due to the biological things which people had from the past. Mm. This isn't a design to have men paid high and women paid low. This is just an accident of what the descendants of those jobs actually were. So again, look, I think we want to lower inequality I think we want to have people doing the right sort of things. But I don't think you should have 50% of males and females in every single job mm. because that's tantamount to saying that they're exactly the same. Yeah. And I don't think that's a fair thing. Yeah. So this conversation taking a political turn, but I like it. Um, <laughs> but I think going, starting with your last point, so that would be tantamount to equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, which I 100% agree is not the way forward. 
Um, I think what helped, and you've done you know a really um, you know better job than I can of explaining it. But like Sounds another no. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but I think what also you know what helps being reminded of is that this idea of a an open market of you know capitalism is a very very recent invention. Like let's you know let's be honest and say two hundred years old, if that. Whereas we've had you know, as part of our role in our tribes or in our communities, um, you know, be defined over thousands of years, and and um, and you know, they can by you know regression be rudimentary, taken back to the primary function of the mother nurturer and the father protector and hunter, and like you you kind of extrapolate out from that, Duncan. Um, you know, in today that kind of translates to you know roles that require more nurturing and empathy, such as being a nurse or a teacher. And for men, it's something that requires more risk, such as you know working in an oil rig or uh, working in finance. And it's or, or starting a new business, you know, or starting it's just a, a more business. risky adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's um, and there's nothing in like um, if I were to believe the people I listen to, there's nothing that the data to suggest that men and women can't or can do one thing better than the other is actually more driven by our more subservient or baser primal instincts on what it is that we want to spend our time doing um, for those reasons that you raised. But the last thing, and this is why it's kind of coming into um, today's other um, contemporary issue, is it's all got to do with how we associate value to those roles. And unfortunately, the only way we really can associate value is money. Whereas someone in a role like a nurse or a teacher, I would argue, plays a exponentially more valuable role than someone who is simply working in finance and figuring out how to you know, leverage investments and uh, you know, get liquidity from assets. But... <laughs> The way the market is structured is that money follows where it can be, um, you know, multiplied. Whereas uh, someone in a more nurturing role follows where somebody can be helped. So, if to me a dualistic problem of how do we value people's roles? Well, that's unfortunately you know driven by money, and the other, which is people's assumption to, like you said, that you know it's been driven by this patriarchal evil society of old white men. When really it's just um, what you can see is. It's far more egalitarian than that. It's much more driven by what is our more baser needs and what do we feel more compelled to want to pursue as a career. I mean, if you want to look at it from one perspective, if you think there should be 50% of everyone doing the same jobs today, well, there should have been 50% of people doing the same jobs 10,000 years ago. 50% of people had to have been giving kids, raising kids, and 50% of people had to be hunting and gathering. But you just couldn't have that. If 50% of the females were hunting and gathering, the, the reproductive outcome of that tribe was wildly lower. So there was specialization to maximize the number of humans. And so as such, there are some differences. So mm. biologically, again, like if you're hungry, you know, your body says, I need to eat food. If you walk near a cliff, you get vertigo. This is what happened. So I, there are biological differences. So females, you know, there is biological outcomes. If they see a child, like a young child, goes off happiness inside of them more than it does for a male. And if they see some dangerous situation, like getting attacked, they're much biologically more different, you know, fight, flight or freeze to go and look after themselves. So, so this is a biological difference that led to the optimal outcomes of humans. And so just like, you know, you want to procreate or whatever else it is, there's biological wiring differences mm -hmm. in the sexes, which is from, you know, millennia of optimizing towards a system that no longer is the dominant system, e.g. a zero-sum world of hunter-gathering. And um, just as a final kind of point to um, you know, put the cherry on the top, is uh, you know, our boy Jordan Peterson uh, would talk... My man. My man. Would talk... What up, dog? JP. JP. <laughs> would yeah, would right, talk was, at yeah. length about how they would do studies. Um, there were studies conducted in um, Scandinavia about how the question put forward was: Would in a more egalitarian society, um, would it produce men and women who were more similar or more different? 
and um, you know, he would say that this was being run by very much um, uh, you know, left-wing or centrist um, scientists who had a, an agenda to try and prove that no, it would, it would produce more similarity, but the exact opposite happened. They became more separate. They became more like in, embedded in their gender-based roles. And so this is a really interesting kind of like observation to kind of, I guess, weigh into this overarching uh, you know, topic that we're exploring, which is what are we primarily, well, what are we biologically programmed for versus what are we telling ourselves socioculturally? Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So summary time, because James is running out of time. Um, I suppose the main point for me was that humanity was incredibly similar for a very, very long time. Uh, so they say that humans are biologically indifferent 50,000 years ago till today. And if you look at that last 50,000 years, things were very, very similar, hunter-gathering. Even like 500 years ago, more than 50% of humans were hunter-gathering. <laughs> um, and they said the earliest agrarian societies they know of are 5,000 years ago. So that means that you might have the first one that started farming. You're still 10% of the time. So the stories and the biology have not optimized for the way stuff is today. If you don't understand what your biology tells you to do, then you are, you know, it's subconscious bias. And if you don't understand the stories which say, okay, you must be loyal. Okay, the opposite of loyalty is being a traitor. You know, you must be part of a tribe. Um, not being part of a tribe meant you died. <laughs> Excommunication. Then you're far more easily warped by this. These values, i.e. must have children, must give them a better life. That's not something which you chose. That's the value that optimized for the most humans. Must be loyal. Must, you know, not be a traitor. That's not something you chose. That's what was the optimal outcome in a zero-sum world. Men and women had different jobs when we were hunter-gatherers. We have different biological wiring. That's not something you chose. That was the optimal outcome for what happened. And so when you start to see these things, you start to be like, ah, oh, okay. And so to me, the more aware I am of some of these things, the more I can start to have subconscious bias move to be conscious bias, which means that I can see it. And I'm like, okay, well, I see the bias here. And do I think I should go with what it's saying to do? Or do I think that now there's a better outcome? So it's fun learning about yourself and others and trying to then think about what's the best decision hmm. to make. So uh, to quote someone I consider very well informed and highly, uh, I highly regard, we've survived the shit out of surviving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so looking back at the earlier, um, so, so what Tim Urban has outlined for us here is this concept of emergence where from single-celled organisms, we've been able to evolve into this entirely complex and, you know, reasoning, uh, I guess, society of independent thinkers. By way of having this idea of what does it mean to think and operate and survive at the individual level versus the group level has given us an edge in terms of, well, the, the human species, the, the homo, homo sapiens, figured out or by way of um, a glitch got to a point where cooperation was a far better model for survival than anything else at the time. And that then ran itself for however many thousands of years, as long as we were subservient to nature. But then came along the point mm. where that began to flip, where that switch was flipped and we began to conquer nature instead. And a more enlightened way of thinking, um, which is by way of Tim Irvin's example, the, the, the higher mind, started to take over, but it took over in a sense of it completely jacked our survival model, but it didn't change our baser model of um, how we should operate within this new world because our brain simply did not have enough time to, to rewire itself in such a small, small, small amount of time. So as per mm. the point you made, Duncan, is that we still have these programs that were very much effective and very much uh, central to our survival thousands of years ago, we still have these programs running today. But it's only when we call attention to this and become aware of them um, and how they do or do not serve us anymore, can we understand what are we making, what decisions are we making truly because they're what we believe or what decisions are we making because we are unconsciously being programmed by our own bodies 
and mm. what we are unconsciously adopting by social cultural indoctrination. And finally, looking at things mm. like gender differences helps us to understand these biological impacts because we still today can't uh, fully extrapolate ourselves from you know what gender we are and how that plays a role in the way in which as a society we decide to um, provide value to it. So really, really fascinating stuff. And I seriously cannot wait to talk to the next part of this uh, ongoing story next time we catch up. Yeah. All right, James. All right, See you soon. Cheers, Duncan.